Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, I'm speaking to you from Turning Stone Casino, close to the International Boxing Hall of Fame, where I've been covering induction weekend. Um, it's been a struggle to be here without you, of course. But I've been doing my best. I've been doing my best. And I gotta say, I had both a highlight and a low light on Saturday. The highlight was at the end of my of an interview I was having with former heavyweight challenger uh, Ray Mercer, who's in fine fettle, by the way. I was very happy good, to see that. Um, I said, hey, you know what? It's been good to, to talk to you. And he said, great to talk to you, man. This is great. This was like the best interview I've ever done. Wow. And and I thought, that's fantastic. There it is. Career highlight right there. <laughs> Career low light. When I took his lapel mic off and realized that it stopped working. And that <laughs> we'll ever, ever hear Ray Mercer saying those words. And I looked through the interview again and because it was on video. And it was all great right up, pretty much right up until that point. As if the gods of karma had decided that there was absolutely no circumstance in which the rest of the world was ever going to hear Ray Mercer say that. <laughs> so, <sighs> womp, womp, I guess. <laughs> a deep sigh and a womp, womp. That uh, that pretty well sums it up. It's going to be the title of my autobiography, by the way. Right. <laughs> <Deep> <laughs> <and a> womp. <laughs> I like that. Um, I don't know, though. I, I, it sounds a little convenient to me that uh, you have no proof of Ray Mercer saying this to you and that we just have to take your word for it. Yeah, I was waiting for that response. I know <laughs> that's going to be the response just generally. Yes. Yeah. The, the, if the video was going, can we at least possibly uh, read lips uh, for proof? Right. If, we can find, if there's a lip reader out there, okay. if there's a lip reader, please, please, because not only that, there was no one else around. It was literally just myself and Ray Mercer sitting there in the tent, the same tent, actually, that we were sitting in ah, um, okay. uh, a year Last ago. Year, right. And yeah, and uh, truly nobody else around to hear it, to see it. But it happened, man. It totally happened. <laughs> so you say. Very convenient. Um, it, in all seriousness, that that does suck. Technical failures, like there's just nothing you can do sometimes. I I, I think I've mentioned to you a time or two that I, I live in terror during every podcast recording I ever do that somehow it will fail to record or save, um, especially when we're on Zoom. I like I just can't fully exhale until the file is saved after it's yeah. all over. It's 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 a miracle that I can semi-concentrate on what I'm saying when a portion of my brain is pacing around worrying about the technical yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Really, this is my fault because I bought these wireless lapel mics mm -hmm. <laughs> the love of me, for like 20 bucks. And I'm like, why isn't everybody buying these? Right. It's $20? It's fantastic. And while they worked, they were great. They just mm. didn't make it through one Hall of Fame weekend. <laughs> you get what you pay for, Kieran. You get what you pay for. Which I think people could say about this podcast. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Um, you pay nothing and you'll get nothing. That's right. You get... uh, <laughs> this week on the podcast, it's yet another jam-packed, high-value show. Uh, it's another, another busy <laughs> Let's, let's call it a fair-value show. Fair-value. Yeah, maybe. Um <laughs> We have uh, Teofimo Lopez's decision win over Josh Taylor and a showbox card to recap. We'll preview a Showtime doubleheader from Australia, headlined by Tim Zhu. We'll break down news involving the likes of Canelo and Usyk and AJ. Uh, I'll play a round of the fight game. And Eric will count down his top five not yet eligible slam dunk Hall of Famers. 
And speaking of Hall of Famers, that's where we'll begin this week's show. As I mentioned, uh, I've been at the Hall of Fame. And uh, boy, this weekend, it got off to a rough start. At uh, mm. the last moment, Eric, uh, everything had to be moved to Turning Stone. The air quality here, I don't know how it's been down in Pennsylvania, but uh, up here in upstate New York and in Vermont, at times it's been pretty rough with the yeah. wildfires fires in Quebec. And really right at the very last minute, the day uh, one and two were moved to Turning Stone. And the folks at Turning Stone were just immediately able to to, to work with the folks at the hall. And it was great that, that they were able to step in, but it's just not the same, eh? Right. It's just not quite the same um, to be doing Hall of Fame interviews in a back room uh, at the casino and to have the fist casting and things like that in the showroom at the Turning Stone. Again, fantastic that they were able to do that. And as always, everybody has been super nice and super helpful. But uh, yeah, I think everyone was happy to be able to get back onto the hall grounds uh, from Saturday onwards when the air quality improved and uh, not quite the extraordinary uh, array of stellar talent as we had last year, of course, when we had those three classes being inducted at once. Oh, 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 the classes. I thought you were talking about me being there oh, last year and not this year. Right. Oh, an array of stellar yeah, talent. Yeah, right, right. Valid. And, you know, that was certainly reflected in the quality of interview. <laughs> yes. Were, you know, well, as Ray Mercer would attest, we're the best this year. <laughs> frankly uh but still there's a good bunch of folks did some good interviews but between myself and our friend and uh and colleague tris dixon we mm. let me see i'm trying to think of who we managed to chat to had a great chat with lucia Riker. uh mm. michael nunn was uh in the house and had a surprisingly good i just had a really good conversation with him like he really wanted to stick around and you know how it is sometimes with these fighters who who have been at their peak many years ago and I want to make sure that everybody still remembers them and yeah. definitely wanted to stick around and, and be interviewed and gave a great interview. Carl Frotch, of course, had plenty to say. <laughs> uh, Do I want to know, Kieran, did he go there? He, uh, uh, off camera, yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Off camera, yes. Uh, uh, he, let's just say he called Tris Dixon lab rat because Tris has been inoculated, has been vaccinated. Ah, so, yes, okay. Yes, so he went there <laughs> unprompted, was happy to go there. Uh, but otherwise seems in fine form. Uh, had a, as you would imagine, terrific interview with Tim Bradley. Does he ever yeah. not give us great interviews? I mean, absolutely magnificent. What I really liked about Tim is I asked Tim, I said, you know, have you ever been to the hall before? And he said, I wanted to wait. I didn't want to come mm. here until and unless I got inducted because I wanted my first time in the museum to be the time that I was there. He is really super. He's I'm so genuinely happy yeah. for, for Tim, who's such a good guy and and really made the most of his talent. And he's such an honest guy. He was saying both in the interview and, and, and interviews I saw him do with other people. And, and he actually talked about this up on the, at the stage at the hall because, man. I wasn't the most talented guy out there. He goes, my talent was all over the place, but he knew, which I think is a bit unfair to himself, but right. you know, he knew that he had the application and the determination um, to win and that that's what got him there. And he's he's absolutely loving this. And, and that's just been a real joy. Uh, our buddy Al Bernstein came up to me at the uh, Showbox fight and 
he's still buzzing from being on the podcast the other week. <laughs> he just came right up to me because, man, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it so much. Uh, uh, he particularly loved talking about Liza. He thought that maybe we talked right. about boxing a little bit too much. And so we'll, <laughs> we, can, we can try to correct that. Sure. Uh, but but uh, who else? Uh, I've been trying to get Anne Wolf. She's been around, but I haven't had a chance to sit down with her. I've seen our buddy Joe Goosen. But wearing a nice suit, even as you may have seen on the Showbox podcast, uh, uh, on the Showbox broadcast, right? Um, uh, not a hint of denim to be seen anywhere so far. Okay. Um, let me see who else. Ah, yes, the absolute very best interview was with Roberto Duran, yeah. and to have the opportunity to sit down with Roberto Duran is always it's 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 extraordinary, of course, because of everything that he's done. But as you and I were talking about when we did the the review of The Kings, mm. how for us, one of the highlights, perhaps the highlight of that show was listening to Duran's commentary and voiceovers and just the kind of light-spirited kind of person he's become. Boy, he's just dialed that up to 11 now. And he was sitting down there. I, I don't want to spoil it too much because I'm hoping we'll have audio uh, to play next week. Right. But his daughter was his translator and let's just say there were times where she kind of stops in the middle of translating and and sort of laughed and blushed and put her head, face in her hands and said papa you put me in really difficult positions with some of these things that you ask me to translate and i think perhaps the nicest thing that i can say is, is he was i asked him about marvin Hagler and mm -hmm. how he felt uh, you know obviously losing marvin you know to be the first of the four kings to die. And the first thing he he said in response to that was, I was robbed. I totally beat Marvin. But, <laughs> but which wasn't quite the response I was right. looking for. Right. But but then he said, Yeah, you know, it's it's you know, it's really sad and I don't understand how somebody so strong died so young. And I said, Well, you're gonna be with us a long time, aren't you? And he goes, Oh man, I'm gonna wait until I'm a hundred and then I'm gonna die. <laughs> and by that stage he goes, My daughter's gonna be wiping my ass every day. <laughs> And she had to translate this line for she you. Had to translate it. It That's was just great. fantastic. And the other great thing about it was, again, it was in that tent. And uh, you know, as we, as you know, with the Hall of Fame, when there's a a big star, the, the huge uh, yeah. crowd of fans follows. And so there was this. So it was basically an interview in front of a huge live crowd mm. that was responding to to every one of his remarks and and his humor and his jokes. And it was just one of those moments that I'll remember as a highlight of, of, a, of a boxing career. It was, it was just fantastic. And then he went away and he went next door to talk to Newsday. And I think he did the whole thing all over again. It was kind of amazing, <laughs> really. I think that he absolutely loves, loves being in this position. And it just amazes me to think of like that snarling, angry 20 something lightweight from the seventies who mm -hmm. bashed Ken Cannon in the balls and how he's turned into what he's turned into. It's amazing, really. Wow, I'm I'm really excited to hear that and uh, read the article you're writing off of it and whatever else. But uh, yeah, that, I knew I was going to feel some degree of jealousy over uh, not being there this weekend and you being there and uh, mostly have been kind of okay with it. But that that one hurts. Not being there for the Roberto <laughs> Duran interview. That one uh, that one I'm legit jealous of. Um, have, did you uh, did did. Uh, did did my all-time fave Mickey end up making the trip this year? Mickey and Dickie. 
both okay, here. They were, uh, they were there. I haven't been able to get a hold of them, okay. but they've been around. And, you know, as you know, I, even though you did give me dispensation to do <laughs> I so. Did. I did. I permitted you to interview him. I said, you can't pass it up if the opportunity right. is presented. But... Doesn't feel quite right. So, okay. uh, right. no, they're. Their their regular presence is here. Certainly, Mickey is, isn't he? Right. Um, yeah, and so it was just like, last. It was last year yeah. he was expected to come, and then and then didn't, unfortunately. But uh, um, mm. so I, that's why I was uh, unsure whether, even though he was on the list, uh, whether mm. indeed he would make it this year. So that's that's good to see that he and he and Dicky are there. Um, yeah, I uh, you know when you look at the last few years of inductions and or lack thereof uh the fact that they had to cancel two of them and then this year the i won't i wouldn't quite call it disaster but at least uh you know setback with the with the air quality uh looking back 2022 what a miracle that we got like everything in everyone was there other than i guess vladimir couldn't make it uh, but uh and and great weather throughout and just like everything cooperated to make for a pretty perfect Hall of Fame induction weekend uh, last year. So uh, really appreciating that uh, even more after what happened this year. Yeah. And, and uh, just while you were talking, I started thinking about uh, Tim Bradley and the, the the talent question and all that. And I'm trying to remember now whether we had, we had the top five list however long ago of top five overachievers or whatever we called it, that guys, guys who maximize their abilities. And I'm trying to remember if he was on that list. If, if not, he at least had to have been under consideration. Yeah. He is one of the all-time got the most out of what he had kind of guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's just great to see how genuinely thrilled and moved he 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 was to be a part of all of this. Yeah. All right. Well, uh sad sad that I uh haven't been there for uh, all this, but happy you were able to go. And uh I will say one part of Hall of Fame weekend that uh I got to feel like I was kind of part of because I watched it on Showtime. Uh, was the Showbox triple header Friday night at Turning Stone. Uh, so let's talk about that. We had uh, three fights in the light heavyweight division. All three went the distance. Two of them almost too close to call, including the main event, Ali Ismailov versus Charles Foster. The taller southpaw Foster boxed from distance early, built a lead, but Ismailov landed a right hand at the very end of the fifth round that dropped Foster, creating a pivotal swing in momentum and in the scoring it remained close right to the finish, but Ismailov landed a couple of big shots just before the bell to end the 10th. All three judges gave him that round. All three judges narrowly gave Ismailov the fight. He won 95-94 and 96-93 twice, helping you close the gap in our picks competition, Kieran, as I had Ismailov by KO and you had him by unanimous decision. So my lead is just 44-43 now. Um I agreed with the 95-94 scorecard for Ismailov, but here's how close it was. The CompuBox stats had both guys landing the same number of punches, 113 apiece. Uh, Foster loses his zero. He drops to 22-1, and while Ismailov improves to 11-0. and But he certainly wasn't as impressive here as what we'd seen from him coming into this fight. Uh, Kieran, how did you score it? And were you disappointed in Ismailov or, or was Foster better than we thought? Or, or, or perhaps this was just a case of a, a difficult style to shine against? I also scored it 95-94, uh, the same as former podcast guest Tom Shrek. And sorry, Tom, when I saw you ringside, I promised you I whatever your scorecard was going to be, I was going to rip it. And <laughs> I, you were right. right. <laughs> um, I actually wouldn't have been super upset if it was 95-94 the other way. It was that close. Uh, yeah. Um, 
And I was a bit disappointed with Ismail off, I've got to say. But I figured that probably a lot of that should be credited to Foster, who definitely outperformed my expectations of him. Uh, I thought Fox Foster boxed very well at times. Mm-hmm. He moved well. He went in with a plan that he knew what he was up against with Ismailov, and he went out with a plan specifically to try and neutralize that. And I thought he was frustrating Ismailov a lot at times. And, and Ismailov looked, almost looked confused by the fact he wasn't able to bully Foster and beat him up. Yeah. And it felt as if this was the first time he'd been in a position where a guy just wasn't going to back down against him. And and I had planned for him and I had a good plan for him. Um, you know, it's a, we use this cliche all the time, but it may end up being a good result for Ismailov in that he did have to work hard for this mm-hmm. win. He learned that he can't always just bash people out the way. And he did find a way to just about eke out a win against a taller ranger, reasonably skilled opponent who sought to negate his skills. Uh, you know, and the problem that Foster had and again, this is the kind of thing we said in abundance about fights before, and it was true here, was that because of Ismailov's power, Foster had to walk that tightrope all night. It was the classic case of Foster needed to fight the perfect fight, and if it wasn't quite perfect, it probably wasn't going to be enough, and I think he touched on it. It was that fifth-round knockdown, and they're just literally those final few punches at the end of the tenth round, because mm-hmm. I thought it was a very close round up until then, and I might have been edging it to Foster, and couldn't quite fight the perfect fight and I think he wasn't helped by the fact that he did apparently injure his shoulder before that fifth round and I saw him in a sling on Saturday morning uh he was at the hall of fame actually and not looking too happy but uh, (laughs) how rough must it be by the way for a fighter after you've lost a fight to then sort of appear in public especially in the boxing crowd the next day it must never can't be easy but yeah Foster had to really kind of thread that needle and walk fight that perfect fight and he just couldn't quite do it uh it was a rough tough awkward fight i think referee charlie fitch got quite the workout pushing those big guys apart (laughs) constantly um but it was one of those fights where i think the loser can actually feel pretty good about his performance and the winner should go back and look at the tape and recognize there's work to do and improvements to be made wrinkles to be ironed out but if he learns from it, hopefully it'll it'll be to his advantage. Yeah, um, I, I liked Barry's closing line, and uh, I assume you didn't hear this being there live uh, unless you were sitting right next to Barry. But uh, the the commentary crew was coalescing around Foster having a pretty good final round, and and that maybe that would win him the fight. And then Ismailov landed those big shots at the end, and Barry punctuated it with a "What now?" Uh, sort of of summed it all up nicely not quite how do you like it but you know sort of in that vein um uh, so i i I like that sort of capper to the fight and um my only other uh comment is that uh, with his performance here even in defeat foster knocks me down one peg on the gray-haired southpaws in boxing rankings he's he's ahead of me i've uh, i've fallen uh, i've fallen one one notch further down that list oh, by the way one other funny like little thing uh, i was in the food court turning stone on for yes on friday mm-hmm. at some point and uh charles foster was there uh sort of standing by the the pizza place and I thought, oh, well, of course, he's weighed in. Everything's fine. But still, I'm not sure you'd necessarily want a lot of pizza in your stomach before you're going into fight. Right. And I went and I ordered. And he was already there when I ordered. And he was still standing there when uh, I picked up the pizza and we wandered off. And I thought to myself, I wonder if he just wants to smell pizza. <laughs> 
<laughs> right? Maybe this is going to be his reward for himself. He's just looking. He goes, when, when I get through this, I'm going to get to have some pizza. And I just I just wondered if he was just like, no, nah, I can't really eat the pizza yet, but mm. I'm going to take in everything here at this pizza place. So. Well, let me, let me offer a theory. What if he just wants to smell the pizza because he is lactose intolerant and that's as close <laughs> as he can get? And thus, I am now a notch lower on the gray-haired lactose intolerant uh, southpaws in boxing rankings. Unquestionably true. I yes. I have I don't think we need to actually research that anymore. Nope. nope. I think it's we're confirmed. Good. Yes. I think scoop. Uh, <laughs> all right. The uh, the co-feature was another extremely close ten rounder that also featured momentum swinging knockdowns, and it ended with Colombia's Juan Carrillo getting his hand raised. He outpointed Richard Van Sicklen by two ninety-five to ninety-three scores, while the third judge had it even at ninety-four ninety-four. Um, I also had it ninety-four ninety-four, but without any conviction at right. all. It was one of those fights where. You know, at first it seemed, I was confident about how it was going, and then there was a point in the midpoint where I was like, I have no idea what the hell's going on here or how this fight's going to end. Um, Korea was in charge early on, dropping Van Sicklen with the right hook in the third, but then Van Sicklen rallied to knock down Carrillo in the fourth. Um, Carrillo improves to 11-0. and Van Sicklen falls to 13-1-1 with his first loss. Uh, any thoughts on what, you, what we saw here? And you want to see either of these guys get another crack on Showbox? Boy, did this fight take a turn in that fourth round. Um, (laughs) Between rounds three and four, I jotted down in my notes, Gordon is off his game. This one is a mismatch. Um, (laughs) It looked looked like Carrillo was a solid couple of levels above Van Sicklen. And then all of a sudden, Van Sicklen hurt Carrillo and dropped him. And it was a hell of a fight the rest of the way. And very much not a mismatch. And as always, we bow down to Gordon (laughs) Hall. Um, But... uh, after he dropped him, Van Sicklen really needed to pounce, and it seemed he was too tired to do so in that yeah. moment. Um, I thought all those scorecards were reasonable. Could have been a draw. Could have been a close win for Carrillo. I'll tell you who Carrillo was reminding me of the first three rounds when he was kicking ass. Um, not a boxer. Uh, I'm going to make a cross-sport comparison, and one yeah. that may mean nothing to you. But uh, I was thinking he's the Nikola Jokic of boxing in that he's not much to look at, He's kind of clumsy and oafish, but don't let it fool you. He's really good. Uh, do you do you know who Nikola Jokic is? Uh, he he um, bounces one of those balls and throws it into hoops. Right? That's correct. Okay, yes, okay. Uh, that's right. So and uh, really doesn't look athletic, but uh, may just be the best player in the world he, right now. Does he fight like? people on the other team on the bench or something. Isn't that what he's known for as well? That's... Didn't that happen? Or am I making that up? No, I'm trying to remember if there was an incident like that. That's definitely not what he's known for. Maybe <laughs> maybe it happened and I'm forgetting it, or maybe you're thinking uh, of, uh... I'm of some different person in a different yes, sport. possible. <laughs> but uh, anyway, back to uh, Carrillo <laughs> and uh, Van Sicklen, the boxers uh, here. Uh, I, I do want to see Carrillo on Showbox again. Um, I think Van Sicklen has a lower ceiling than yeah. Carrillo, but but I wouldn't mind seeing him again. Um, he has such a big personality that helps. So, actually, I'd say I'm I'm not opposed to a Showbox rematch. Um, mm. I wish we got those more often after a good close yeah. Showbox fight. Uh, in this case, I'm I'm definitely up for Carrillo Van Sicklen too. I'd be curious to see what adjustments these guys make if they ran it yeah. back. Yeah. Um, We probably don't have to spend more than a minute or two on the opening bout. Uh, It was the lone clear-cut decision on the card. Australia's Clay Waterman winning an eight-rounder over Kenmon Evans by scores of 77-75, which seemed a bit too close to me, uh, and 78-74 twice. It took Waterman a round or two to adjust to Evans' height and reach advantages, but then it was pretty much all one-way traffic. Waterman moves to 11-0. 
Evans is now 10-1-1. Kieran, what did you think of Waterman? Any sense of whether he's a prospect worth keeping an eye on? Um, yeah, you know, I quite I quite like the look of him, actually. I must say, it's funny. I was sitting next to, I don't know if you know, Andre Courtmanch, the publicist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I was sitting next to him, and quite early on, uh, he made some crack looking at looking at Waterman's tattoos. Uh, it goes, oh, it looks like he's going for the full Kodo, because there was there were some certain similarities <laughs> right. there. And you know what? Obviously, I given my man crushness, I see Miguel Kodo everywhere. But <laughs> there was an element of Kodo in the way he fought, fights too: the hands up high, chin tucked, head forward a little bit, kind of marching forward, um, working behind a jab. Um, I, I quite like the look of him, especially once he got going. Notwithstanding the fact that um, Evans is promoted by Christy Martin, who, by the way, was sitting ringside with Lisa Holloway and an absolutely adorable little Pomeranian of theirs. I, I, I saw that on the on the on Showbox. They cut to Christy Martin, and you could sort of see Lisa half in frame, and you okay. could see the dog. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> it was just adorable. Just the most adorable little thing, just sitting there quite happily uh, all night. Um, notwithstanding, I almost found myself rooting against Evans a little bit. I'm sure he's a lovely fellow, but if you're gonna box like that, do that hands down, kind of slightly arrogant kind of thing, and try to move your get out of punches with your head, even as your hair is flying around all over the place. If you're gonna have that that kind of style, you better be able to back it up, right? I I think that's the kind of style that it feels arrogant. And you can get away with it if you're very, very good. And I, I think, and I think we talked about this years ago, that there's still that generation of boxers that sort of tries to box like Floyd or Roy. Right. If you're not Floyd or Roy, you can't do it. <laughs> right. You know, there's a reason they could pull it off. I'm sure he's a lovely fella, but uh, yeah, he just just wasn't, just didn't have the technique, didn't have the grounding um, to really. Uh, put a dent in Waterman and I quite liked what I saw of Waterman and I would be quite happy to see him again. All right. Um, solid show box show. Uh, but the biggest fights of the weekend were on Saturday night when we got a strong fight of the year contender and a world championship changing hands. Let's start with the latter. Um, not the best fight of the weekend, but the most significant at the theater at Madison square garden, Teofimo Lopez soundly outboxing Josh Taylor for the lineal 140 pound title. A result, you and I and almost everyone not named Breadman <laughs> Edwards didn't see coming. Uh, and even as it was happening, two of the judges were barely aware it was happening. Uh, Benoit Roussel had a fine score of 117-111 for Lopez, but Joseph Pasquale and Steve Gray both had it 115-113, two of the worst inconsequential scorecards we've seen in a while. But they all scored for Lopez, who is back on top after a little hiccup in which we questioned him, and he openly questioned himself. Uh, the previously undefeated Taylor just couldn't keep up with him. Uh, after a close first three or four rounds, Teofimo dominated this one, and he is now the junior welterweight champ and in no danger of being removed from the four <laughs> princes. Kieran, what did we get wrong here? Uh, how did Taylor win this fight and make it look kind of easy? And any other thoughts on what unfolded at MSG? So I think the thing is that nobody, well, few people, ever doubted Lopez's talent right. or his skills. Uh, the question of late has been this, these swirling distractions and emotions and issues with everything going on in his life and whether he had it in him to get past those distractions. And 
there were certainly, as you alluded to, times where it seemed that he doubted that himself, honestly. Um, in the aftermath of his win over Sandor Martin, in which he didn't look fantastic, no. he asked out loud, seemingly to himself as much as to anyone, whether he still had it. And even after this win, he was talking afterward about the toll of his divorce, and he speculated about retirement. Some fighters are overwhelmed by personal turmoil, some thrive on it, and some are always riding that tiger and you never know how it's going to go from one day to the next to one fight to the next and i wonder if that third category is where we're going to be with teofimo lopez mm -hmm. that you know even during the build-up to this one it, it just felt as if his train was coming off the rails but as it turned out on this night he was able to just shut everything out and, and return to being that phenomenally precocious talent we've known before the one who mowed down all kinds of opposition the one who outboxed lomachenko and added to that also is the fact that it's rumored that taylor doesn't necessarily live the cleanest life and as we did talk about last week he hadn't fought in over a year right. he arguably or maybe not even arguably lost that fight then he'd had a foot injury might have been struggling with the way he looked pretty gaunt at the way in and he talked afterward about moving up to welterweight and he just didn't have it against the Lopez, who, like you said, after that slightly slowish start, just seemed to get into a zone. And once he was in that zone, just stayed there. Every noise and every distraction shut out. You sometimes see a fighter just almost welcoming being in the ring. And it looked as if Lope, that's where Lopez was at. Um, you mentioned Breadman, and, and he said something post-fight that I thought was on the money, that not only is Teofimo Lopez quick of hand and foot, but he's quick of mind too in the ring and, and i thought that was an excellent assessment of what was happening yeah. in there we we talk quite often about how it's not a good thing if you see a boxer having to think a little too hard in the yeah. ring and you could tell that lopez on saturday night was in a place where everything was flowing almost subconsciously that his hands were flowing naturally without him even having to give a second thought not just of where he was throwing but when this was a, a really about timing i thought this this fight as much as anything and once lopez was in the flow was Taylor who couldn't keep up. He was the one who was left in the position where he was doing the thinking, where he was trying to catch up and negate what Lopez was doing and was always just that step or two behind. Um, this was arguably an even better performance for Lopez than the Lomachenko fight, I think partly because of the doubts mm -hmm. that we had about him going into this. And I think it underlines that there were explanations for his subpar outings against George Cambosis and Sandor Martin. We previously acknowledged that the Cambosis thing was just a freak. And honestly, it's amazing he even made it into the ring, let alone out of it because of his the health problems he was having. And you know what? Maybe Martin is just an awkward guy to box. Yeah. A tough style to look good against. And maybe it's going to be the case, like I said, with Lopez, that with everything else going on in his life, he's going to have tough fights. And then suddenly he's going to have amazing fights. I, I don't know that we're going to see a non-bumpy ride from Lopez from here. I, I just think we're going to have to strap in and, and go along with the ride. Uh, I'd still like to see an outside voice in place of his father, um, I, uh, or at least in addition to his father. But he did remind us of just how good he can be when everything flows, honest, flows right. And honestly, now the questioning narrative shifts to Taylor. You're, we're like, mm -hmm. wow. He hasn't had a clear win since he beat Jose Ramirez two years ago, and he lost the second half of that fight, and he's 32, and maybe it's Taylor's the one who we have to worry about and wonder about the future of. So what about you? I mean, anything to add there? And actually, in addition to the fight, what happens to these guys from your perspective going forward? Um, so 
I certainly, in retrospect, uh, overrated what I perceived as Lopez's confidence problems and possible mental unraveling, and I clearly did not spend enough time actually thinking about the style matchup here, because as it unfolded, it quickly became obvious, and I know it's always easy to say that as you're watching it as opposed to before you're watching it, but it became obvious, you know, there is a significant difference in Lopez's favor in speed, athleticism, and creativity. Um, over and over, Taylor's wider shots weren't getting there in time. And Lopez, you talked about the timing. He he was finding the openings while those wider shots were still making their way toward him. And it actually got a little sad for Taylor. Um, when, mm-hmm. when Teo started showboating in round eight and Taylor for a second there tried to showboat back, but his heart wasn't really in it. And it just wasn't who it, it isn't who he is as a fighter. By yeah. doing that, he was kind of admitting that Lopez was totally in his head. Um, by the end of the eighth round, it seemed to me Taylor had only one route for winning this fight, and that was to hurt Lopez to the body. He had no other prayer of turning the fight around. Uh, I just couldn't see him technically doing anything different, catching up. It was just maybe he could land a big body shot. That's about it. Um, that said, on two of the scorecards... He didn't really need to turn the fight around. Um, I I looked at the round by round. Those two judges both had Taylor sweeping the first three rounds, which it isn't insane, but it's still less than stellar judging. And it's a reminder that those close early rounds all count the same as dominant late rounds. And sometimes a judge taking a couple of rounds to recognize what's happening in the fight can make all the difference. Um, I have a whole column coming out in Ringside Seat Magazine about boxing's judging problem, so no need to spoil it all here, but it is long past time to start adopting more liberal use of the 10 points. It is absurd that because a couple of judges made a questionable call on a close round or two, Lopez needed to win both the 11th and 12th or Taylor keeps his title. Uh, if Lopez had, had taken his foot off the gas at all down the stretch, it's a draw. Um, boxing dodged a bullet here because this fight was not close and the scoring system allowed it to end up dangerously close. Um, so uh, where would I like to see these guys go next? Uh, Josh Taylor, you mentioned it. I, I think he's going to move up to 147. He should. This is two subpar performances in a row. He's in his 30s now. It yeah. sure seems he's outgrown the 140-pound division and ought to at least find out if he has more energy at 47. I know he said he wants a rematch with Lopez, but that's a non-starter to me. You know, maybe down the road at 147 if Taylor can get a couple of good wins, but but right now there is no reason for a rematch. As for Lopez and where he goes next, um, I guess I have to take my Teofimo versus Ryan Garcia loser leaves the four princes match oh, yeah. off the table. Um <laughs> Now, it's still Teo against Garcia is still a fine and highly promotable fight. It just uh, doesn't have those particular stakes. Um, but it, it's not my first choice. I'd rather see Lopez defend against some of the most proven guys at 140, like Regis Progray. That's a great fight. Um, if Devin Haney decides he's outgrown 135, that's a tremendous meeting of princes now at 140. There are plenty of options for Lopez and We'll all be watching closely to see if he can handle success better the second time around, if he can handle being a lineal champ better in his second reign. Um, I guess I'd say his people ought to keep him motivated and fighting top guys. His best performances have come against his best opponents. So it seems to me maybe the the move is 
don't bother with any soft touches. Just just keep keep them in big fight after big fight. Yeah. You know what my other thought is listening to you talk about that is that there is so much material for us to keep revisiting uh, favorite <laughs> yeah. matchups at 135 and 140. Yeah. I'm curious how different it would have been if we done it this week instead of a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, already, yeah already it's changed. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. Our plan heading into the weekend was to lump all the other fights together in one quick dis- discussion, but we can't do that. We have to separate our Jaime Munguia's win over Sergei Derevyanchenko in Ontario, California on Saturday night, because in a year full of fight of the year candidates, this might be the fight of the year so far. Uh, 12 rounds of nonstop action, fight in the balance entering the final round. Munguia scored a knockdown about a minute into the round. Couldn't force the stoppage, but got what he needed to prevail by scores of 114-113 twice and 115-112 as hardest luck of hard luck fighters. The Revianchenko loses yet another close one. Eric, did the judges get it right? Did the people calling it fight of the year have it right? How do you view each of these fighters coming out of this war? Yes, the judges got it right, in my view. Uh, immediately after the decision was announced, one of the broadcasters used the R word, robbery, and... It was totally uncalled for. And believe me, I, I, I hate the backlash against the word robbery as much as anyone. It feels like anytime you say robbery, there's someone, no, 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 it was a close fight. You can't call it a robbery. Um, I guess I'm being that guy this time, but this really was not a robbery at all. If you had it 114-113 for the guy who was down and nearly out in the final round, um, you can feel bad for him, but you can't bitch about some kind of miscarriage of justice. That's just ridiculous. Uh, I had it 115-112 Munguia. I almost had it 115-111 because I do want to see more liberal use of the 10 points mm-hmm. applied. And there was a case to be made for a 10-7 round in the 12th. Uh, you know, a knockdown. And he hurt him several more times. Mm-hmm. Almost had him down a few more times. It was a completely one-sided round. But 115-112 on my card. 114-113 is fine. And if you scored it 114-113 for Derevyanchenko, also fine. But I suspect you were scoring relative to expectation in some close mm. rounds. You know, wow, Munguia's struggling. Derevyanchenko's doing better than he was supposed to. And you're letting that tilt your scoring, perhaps. Um, the judges agreed on 10 of the 12 rounds, uh, which doesn't prove anything, but it's a pretty decent indication that the scoring was generally on point. As for fight of the year, yeah. I think it's probably the new leader in the clubhouse. We've had some real good ones. Uh, Navarrete Wilson, Rakimov Cordina, a couple of others that aren't coming right to mind. There have been so many. Um, but but this one, for quality of action, consistency of action, and then a dramatic finish where a 12th round knockdown determines the outcome, just like the third Vasquez-Marquez fight in that way. Uh, this fight checked pretty much all the boxes. And the dramatic irony was spectacular. Munguia's team reportedly wanted to pay Derevyanchenko big money to change it from a 12-rounder to a 10-rounder. And Sergei said no, and those last two rounds were where Munguia won the fight. Now, I'd love to believe that what really happened is Munguia was in excellent shape and wanted to go 12 and made the offer to trick Derevyanchenko into thinking he wasn't in great shape so that he could surprise Sergei with his energy down the stretch. I'm sure that's not what happened, but, you know, as a fan of complex plotting and twists and such, that's <laughs> that's what I may choose to believe. Um, so your last question, how do I view these fighters now? Um, Munguia, not much changes. He's, he's fun. He's deeply flawed. 
he will almost certainly lose the first time he faces an elite opponent. And it's up to his team to decide if they want him to continue on this path or take a big risk and probably suffer that first loss. I have to say, um, certainly he's not the talent that Fernando Vargas was, but his career is an interesting case for here's how it might have gone for Vargas if his team, if his team had mm-hmm. kept him away from Trinidad and Oscar and just milked it a few more years. Um, Drevyanchenko, man, what can you say? So, some fighters are very good but never get over the hump. Uh, that's him. He's he's 37. This is a sport where the hump hits back, as we know. Um He's now fighting in a division where he's clearly a bit undersized. He has some thinking to do. He's still a world-class fighter, but he could fall off that cliff at any moment. And I would just hate to see him become a total gatekeeper and start losing to mediocre prospects. Um, He's clearly not at that point yet, but it feels like it's coming. Uh, At the very least, I would like to see Sergei Derevyanchenko take a long vacation after this fight. Yeah. All right. Now we're up to the part where we lump fights together and breeze through them. Uh, On Friday night in Miami, uh, Adrian Bronner fought for the first time in 28 months and posted a near shutout win over practicing lawyer Bill Hutchinson. At Wembley Arena on Saturday, uh, Sonny Edwards retained his flyweight belt by unanimous scores of 117-111 against challenger Andres Campos. On the Taylor Lopez undercard, super welterweight super prospect Xander Zayas dominated Ronald Cruz over eight rounds, scoring an early knockdown and winning by unanimous 80-71 to scores. And on the Munguia Derevianchenko undercard, Shane Mosley Jr. scored a dominant KO7 win over Demetrius Ballard. Eric, any thoughts on any of these? Uh, yeah, uh, some quick ones. Uh, Mosley Jr., He's nothing spectacular, but he's very good for a son of a Hall of Famer. Um, he's, he mm. started to win me over on the last season of The Contender, uh, and he continues to gradually, slowly prove his worth. Zayas, this was fairly pointless, but he got rounds and exposure and remains one of the very best prospects out there, and, and Top Rank just continues to find and develop great prospects like nobody else. Yeah, Edwards, uh, I thought uh, Curtis Woodhouse, the, the ex-boxer and, and soccer player, uh, I, he said it better in his tweet than I can. Quote, once you have seen one round of Sonny, you have seen his whole career. He's talented but boring. It's why the venue is silent. Everybody has gone home. End quote. Um, Edwards is a showman. He's, he's a cocky SOB, but it do, does indeed get boring quickly. He's calling out Bam Rodriguez. That's um, an interesting fight. I got to think long and hard about the style matchup and, and who I'd favor there. And uh, Broner, uh, I didn't watch the fight. Why would I? Uh, all you need to know is he declared afterward, I want all the belts. And he went into the can man routine from about 10 years ago. He's playing the hits, uh, except <laughs> the hits were never that good. This this isn't like uh, Pearl Jam touring in 2023. This is... Limp Biscuit touring in 2023, and the people in the crowd either have really bad taste, or after one song, they're realizing, oh, right, uh, these guys suck. What am I doing here? Um, so, uh, listeners, I implore you, uh, cancel your subscriptions to all other boxing podcasts. This is the only one that's comparing Adrian Broner to Limp Biscuit this week, and, and therefore, this is clearly the, the only podcast you need, right? I think it's worse. I think it's a Limp Biscuit cover band, actually. <laughs> that That's what he is now. In his prime, yeah. maybe he was Limp Biscuit. Yeah. Hey, you know what? I'm thrilled for him that he wants all the bells. I also want to live with Halle Berry. And you know what? I might have a slightly better chance of seeing my ambition fulfilled I, at this point. I, I, I don't know. Um, but, and it's funny. It's not the most important fight at all of the 
of the weekend, but boy, Shane Mosley Jr. sure is a bit of an enigma. I, uh, mm-hmm. He can lose to Jason Quigley one minute and then pull out a performance like this the next. He's another one of the those guys who's kind of good. Yeah, like you said, good for a son of a Hall of Famer. Uh, he's, he can be good and then quite disappointing. He actually does seem to be getting slightly better as yeah. he ages. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I found that kind of interesting. I did not see that performance coming. I did not see him blasting Demetrius Ballard out of there, but there you go. Yeah, he uh, he and Adrian Broner are going in opposite directions at similar Yes, <laughs> Yes, they are. Uh, all right. Um, it is time for the fight game. Uh, let me take a cue from Adrian Broner and say anyone can win the fight game in five clues, <laughs> but not just anyone can win it in one or two. Uh, are you ready to see right. if you can do it, Kieran? Well, I have done it. You have, but whether you can, can you can't be the can man this week is the question. Right, yes, right, yes. <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out. Here we go. We'll ready? Clue one. I'll just see if Hallie's ready as well. Yep. <laughs> yes, ready. okay, she'll assist you. Perfect, okay. Uh, in keeping with this week's podcast theme, this was a meeting of two future Hall of Famers, but the circumstances weren't totally ideal. One was returning from a 21-month layoff, the other weighed in 11 pounds heavier than his previous career high. Uh, huh. So if it was not ideal circumstances and it was 11 pounds heavier than his previous, high, I'm going to say these were probably heavyweights. So this wasn't probably a case of somebody missing weight by an enormous amount or moving up in weight. I think the fact that you said it wasn't the best circumstances means they were heavyweights. Are you going to give me that or you're just going to be quiet? I will say you're... something after you've lodged a guess for uh, okay, if, if you're enough. going to lodge a guess. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I'm not going to lodge a guess, okay. actually. But I, but you know how it is now. It's going to turn out that it was a flyweight fight and I'm well, stuck on it. So now. I'm going to help you out and not allow you to go way down the wrong path. by. Bef- uh, you, you don't get a guess right now, but I will say it is not heavyweights. It is not heavyweights. It is not heavyweights. All right. Okay. So now, now I'm moving on to clue two. Okay. And this is a weird clue, but uh, what the hell? I'm writing the clues. I can do what I want. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> The month, day, and year of this fight's date each end in a nine. <laughs> so, you know, you know exactly what month it took place in. There's only one right. month that ends in a nine. Uh, nice. And uh, I don't, I don't uh, know if yes. knowing that it was the 9th, 19th, or 29th of September helps you, but you know it was a year ending in nine. So there's some information for you. <laughs> that is indeed information. <laughs> it is. You are you are correct. I I cannot dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> it does give me a finite number of dates to work with. Um, it does. It doesn't help advance any guess on my part. However. I'm not I'm not surprised. That. I'm not surprised. I I, I, I admit that was a... not that helpful to me at all. You just thought that was fun, didn't you? Uh, kind of. But but yeah, in, in coordination with the next clue, I think okay. uh, I think maybe these two work together a bit. Here you go. Clue three, on the undercard, Jesse Vargas in his sixth pro fight, Arislandi Lara in his eighth pro fight, plus the pay-per-view co-main was Chris John versus Rocky Juarez. Oh, okay. All right. So we have to be, there's no way. So this has to be 1999 has to be the nine in question, I would Uh, think. Nope. 
Try again. And then 2009. <laughs> yes. Because it's, two, it's not any later than that, that's for sure. If it's yes. Rocky Juarez, Chris John on the pay-per-view, go main. Chris, uh, Rocky Juarez was on the 2000 Olympic team. So uh, so, so the 99 oh. uh, guess wouldn't have worked. So, uh, yes. So so I'm basically spelling out for you these two clues together give you September 2009. Okay. <laughs> which may not bring you uh, all that much closer to the answer, but uh, more information. Once again. And let me, while you're thinking, I'm going to reread the opening clue just to see if it uh, sparks something now that you have more information. This was a meeting of two future Hall of Famers, but the circumstances weren't totally ideal. One was returning from a 21-month layoff. The other weighed in 11 pounds heavier than his previous career high. This is definitely, I know I've said this a lot before, but this is definitely one of those where listeners are screaming now. Yes, I like, believe I believe like, they've started screaming now. Yes. It was in September 2009. Yes. I'm either the 9th or the 19th of September. Or the 29th. Or the 29th. Oh my god, well that's just thrown everything out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. You were thinking about the 29th. <laughs> that changes everything. Oh my god. Oh my god. I don't know yet. I don't okay. know. All right. All right. Um, okay. You want to you want to go to clue 4? Yeah, let's get a clue. I, I think you will get it. If you don't, there's always clue five. But uh, there's always clue five in which you basically spell out the names. Pretty so, much. So, yeah. Okay. But clue four, I think you're gonna get it. The winner scored a knockdown in the second round and coasted, as he often did, to a decision win by scores of 120 to 107, 118 to 109, and 119 to 108. Is it Floyd? It is. Oh, Floyd and Marquez. Yes, there it is. Floyd Mayweather, the unanimous decision win over Juan Manuel oh, Marquez. Okay. Now that first clue makes total sense. Yes. <laughs> there. This was one where I was coming in thinking there is a chance you'll get it off one. If, yeah. if you if you think of what the 11 pounds yeah. heavier than his previous career high means. Uh, but you were way off thinking of heavyweight. So, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because that was what was confusing. I mean, yeah, actually, that was a great first clue. Um, yes. If you can, if you get once you get the context, it's a terrific first clue. But right. it's really confusing. I'm like, wow, Hall of Famers. And but he was that overweight. And why would right. the fight go ahead? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. I didn't oh, say I he was it. 11 pounds over the limit, just no, 11 pounds over yeah, his previous uh, high. Yeah. And, and there was something Floyd blew through the weight, agreed weight or something. I can't remember. There was that other factor as well, wasn't there? Or he changed the oh, weight. Oh, right. I wasn't even thinking about that. But yes, it was agreed to be at like 144 and then Mayweather paid to make it 146 at the last minute or something, something along like those That's lines. Right. Yeah. 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 Something like that. And yes, and Marquez didn't look great at the weight in that fight no. and oddly looked entirely different the next time he came out of oddly yes no <laughs> yes. no possible explanation for no why further questions be. none <laughs> um so here was here was the clue five that we didn't get to um it's actually a bit different in style than usual it's still a dead giveaway but uh but i didn't go the route of like rhyming any names or making any puns off money may <laughs> or anything like that here it is both fighters were inducted into the hall as part of the trilogy class in 2022. One of them we interviewed and he surprised us by doing the whole interview in English. The other we did not interview 
In fact, I haven't spoken directly to this fighter since 1998 when he was preparing to challenge Gennaro Hernandez for his first title. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, I might have still been like going going through the gears trying to figure it out until that final until that final question. Until that but final yeah, detail, I, yeah. Until the final detail, I mean, yeah. Yes, I might have still. You, been, oh, you God, wouldn't you wouldn't was... have remembered that uh, Juan Manuel Marquez uh, surprised us with uh, his English show when we interviewed oh, him just, just a year ago. I would have been panicking at this stage, you know. <laughs> right. Right. You like couldn't remember your own name, much less Juan Manuel Marquez. Sebastian Marquez's. Bonura. No. Um, uh, right. Andre Ward. Michael Spinks? Yeah. Right. Just throwing stuff at the wall. Right. By the way, mm. by the way, talking yes. of Hall of Fame interviews, yes. bumped into uh, our buddy Bobby Hoyle at mm-hmm. the hall. And the first thing he said to me was, nice job on that Andre Ward documentary, he said, as if our like 15 <laughs> seconds was us being involved in actually making it what it was so there you go (laughs) the fame the fame spreads wider for you nah not for me you were there you were there you got on screen billing would would bobby hoyle have made that comment to me though i don't know i'm not i'm not really recognizable from my role in that documentary (laughs) let's put it this way nobody has stopped me on the street yet to talk to me about it (laughs) because i'm quite recognizable from the uh the bald spot that was visible from the rear camera (laughs) angle (laughs) again uh uh, no further comments no further comments indeed all right we've done a lot of looking back so far on this podcast let's look ahead now to this saturday it's a special edition of showtime boxing international a two-fight broadcast from the gold coast convention and exhibition center in broad beach queensland australia starting at 10 p.m eastern 7 p.m pacific note to self move to the west coast for next week (laughs) um and again that showbox card good lord the time i got out of there it's just uh, again we've got to our campaign has got to be for matinees. Right. Yes. yes. Um, right. Anyway, I digress. I'm sorry. Uh, Tim Zhu uh, remains active while waiting for his 154-pound championship fight against Jamel Charlo. And just three months after stopping Tony Harrison, Zhu puts his mandatory position and his perfect 22-0, 16 KOs record on the line against Mexico's Carlos Ocampo, 34-2 with 22 KOs. Ocampo is 34-0 when not fighting on Showtime. But 0-2 on the network with a decision loss to Sebastian Pandora last year and a knockout in the first round on body shots delivered by Errol Spence back in 2018. Based on that track record of losing when he stepped up, Ocampo may seem a safe opponent for Sue. But what do you think, Eric? Is this safe indeed for the rising Aussie star? Break down the matchup a little bit for us and make your pick. I do think it's fairly safe. Uh, Ocampo is not going to outbox Sue. And he's not a real heavy-handed guy who's a major threat to hurt Zoo. You know, every fighter is dangerous. All it takes is one punch you don't see, yada, yada. But relatively speaking, Ocampo isn't that guy. Uh, He's not hard to find, doesn't have much head movement. He's just tough and game, a little awkward, and willing to apply pressure. And he gave Fundora some problems early, but you may recall that fight. Uh, Yes, Ocampo lasted the distance, but Jack Reese spent a lot of time in the final few rounds threatening to stop it. Um, I think Ocampo's record tells you exactly who he is. A, a good, sturdy fighter who will beat all the B-level comp and none of the A-level comp. Uh, he has a little height and reach on Zoo. He may have some moments, but I think in the end, he is exactly who you want to fight if the goal is to stay busy, get a win against a credible opponent, and not blow the title shot that you have set up around the corner. Zoo, boy, he reminds me so much of his dad in terms of 
how calm he is, how determined he is, how dangerous he is at all times, and how he doesn't really betray with his body language how things are going in a fight. Right. He, yep. has, he has a real veteran poise and a seriousness about him. And he also has a great jab. That was impressing me against Tony Harrison. Um, I'd expect to see him flash that, the jab, quite a bit here. Uh, get some work in, stay within himself, box smart and steady, and go into that Charlo fight with a lot of momentum. I think he will beat Ocampo. I think he will beat him by stoppage. And I think it's largely up to Zoo what round the stoppage comes in. How aggressive will Zoo be? How much will he go to the body where we know Ocampo can be hurt? I could see him stopping Ocampo within five rounds if he really wants to, but I'm going to say he's in no particular rush, and this will end up being a knockout for Tim Zhu in round seven. Oof. Okay, for a moment I thought, I just feel that it's going to be exactly the same prediction as me. I could just tell, like, <laughs> we were in basic readings from my notes. But right. there's a slight difference. I very okay. nearly picked seven, but okay. I did pick a slight difference. But obviously, spoiler alert, I'm also picking Tim Zuda to win by stoppage. Yes. Look, Ocampo isn't bad at all, right? He's a perfectly good uh, uh, a price fighter. Uh, yeah, he was stopped by Errol Spence, but that can happen. He was only 22 and couldn't get anywhere near Fundora, but that happened to plenty of folks, too. Uh, and I'm not sure how much facing the Southpaw towering inferno tells us about how he's going to fare against the Orthodox Zoo. I, the biggest question that I have about Ocampo, and it's the same that essentially you ask and answer yourself, is does he have anything to trouble Zoo? And I don't think he does. Yeah. He's perfectly sound, but does he bring anything to the table that Zoo hasn't seen before? He's got a bit of power, like you said, but you know nothing really i think that's that's gonna give zoo anything to worry about and i made the same thing in my notes a lot depends i think it's gonna come down to zoo's heavy hands and if he wants to the body punching i, I kind of see it being a fight uh, that again was like a lot of his father's fights that maybe it starts off with zoo winning each round by a bit and then that bit becomes bigger and bigger with each with each round i think he, he becomes progressively more dominant yeah, I, I, I do think it's the only question really is when I almost plumped for seven. I decided to plump for nine. That's oh. what I'll go with. Oh, you actually surprised me. I thought with your reaction that it had to be either six or eight, that we had to no. be just one off. But OK, no. shocker, two no. of two rounds apart. <laughs> shocker for us. I love it. Yeah. By our standards. Right. It's, it's <laughs> major upset. <laughs> Indeed. Of course, now it will happen in the eighth, right in between us. <laughs> of course it will. Yeah. Um, opening the broadcast, one of our favorites, 122-pound contender Rais the Beast Alim meets Australia's Sam Goodman, uh, not to be confused with the world's greatest criminal lawyer, Saul Goodman, uh, in a scheduled 12-round alphabet title eliminator. Alim is 20-0 with 12 KOs. Goodman is 14-0 with seven knockouts. This is a big step up on paper for Goodman, uh, though he has beaten three opponents who've challenged for titles. You could make a case that maybe it's a step up for Alim as well, as his best wins have come against the likes of Vic Pasillas, Eduardo Baez, and Mike Plania. Kieran, how high are you on Alim these days? What do you make of Showtime debutante Goodman, and what's your pick? Yeah, so I am still high on Alim, but with one caveat that's unfortunately um, too true of too many fighters uh, these days we just haven't seen enough of him lately and 122 is a pretty good division 
there's some pretty good stuff happening, uh, especially now with Naoya Inoue moving up into it. And I, I feel like it's the division's in danger of passing Aline Bai a little bit. Mm. Uh, he, I think he was one of the first names we would mention when we were talking about this division a couple of years ago. And I'm not sure that that's the case right now. And that's not necessarily because of anything bad that he's done, just that he's perhaps stood still a little bit or not moved forward with quite enough pace whereas others have done um he had just the one fight last year which was a solid decision win that you mentioned over mike plenier but it's been a while since we saw him look really good i mean his last truly impressive performance was probably that stoppage that you mentioned of vic Pasias, and mm-hmm. that was january 2021 um goodman has one probably truly notable win on his resume um which was his last time out a decision against tj doheny but Doheny had seen better days by that point. He'd, he'd lost three times in his previous five outings, so I'm not sure how much we can learn from that. I do suspect that he doesn't have the speed or the skill to catch up to Aleem or really cause him too much trouble. I think it'll, it, again, it might be reasonably competitive early, but I just think Aleem's natural skill and speed will be enough for him here. I think Aleem will ultimately cruise to a unanimous decision win. But then he can't just rest on his laurels. Then he, I want to see him, after he does that, get back in the ring and get back in the ring against good opponents. Again, he's 32. Uh, I don't want to see uh, the opportunity pass him by. But I do feel fairly comfortable that Ray Salim will get a decision win here. Okay. I, I, I'll i spoil uh, right off the top that I have the same pick, but I, I struggled with it more than it sounds like okay. you did. Um, there isn't too much to see of Goodman out there. Um, but what there is, he looks slick, sharp, confident. Um, fires off a tight one-two. From what I could tell, this doesn't look to be a walkover for Aleem. And of course, it being in Australia, one presumes Aleem doesn't want it to be a close distance fight. Um, I do think Aleem is a tremendous talent. So so I consider him the favorite here, but uh, I, I really don't think this is an easy fight to pick. He's going to have to really use his hand speed and combinations, and I think he's going to have to be aggressive and, and really take the fight to Goodman make it hard for judges to score the rounds for the local kid. Um, I'm, I'm even a little bit tempted to pick the upset here to say okay. it's uh, our guy, uh, better call Sam by close decision, but, but <laughs> I, I can't quite do it. I, I will stand by how big an Aleem believer I've been the last few years. And, you know, also when in doubt, pick the guy who's been on the podcast. I think, <laughs> I think maybe Aleem scores a knockdown or two and that helps separate him as he wins a close unanimous decision at the end of a fast-paced, entertaining fight. All right. Uh, Before we get to the outside the ring news, there's one other fight this coming weekend worth a mention, a little bit of a preview. Saturday on DAZN, 140-pound belt holder Regis Progre fights in his native New Orleans against Danielito Zoria. Zoria's only pro defeat was a competitive decision to Arnold Barboza Jr. 11 months ago. Any quick thoughts on this one, Kieran? It's great to see Progre again, especially as by modern standards, it hasn't been so very long since we saw him look very good indeed against uh, uh, Jose Cepeda. Uh, Zaria, this feels like it's almost a bit of a theme of this podcast. Zaria, I think, is going to be one of those, going to have one of those careers in which he's very good, but not quite good enough for the top level. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think the fact that he came just short against Barboza, who's himself a very good fighter, suggests that, you know, we sort of already may have an indication of what his level is. Solid technician. Good overhand right, good left hand to the body, as you'd expect from a Miguel Cotto protege. Um, and he's quite rangy, he delivers his punches with decent torque. There's not much to dislike about him from what I've seen from how he fights. Um, 
but if he does a lot of things well, I'm not sure he does anything extremely well, and he doesn't seem to be either particularly fast or, or particularly elusive, and I just don't see him having enough to get past a, a stellar talent by, like Progre, but I do think he's good enough to make Progre have to dig deep a bit at times and work hmm. to get that win in front of his hometown crowd. Uh, for our news main event, let's combine a few stories and talk heavyweights, which feels like we've been doing an awful lot lately, yeah. um, as we continue to count down to that possibility of the December Fury Usyk Wilder Joshua doubleheader in Saudi Arabia. Um, we have Usyk signing with a Saudi Arabian co-promoter, Skill Challenge Entertainment, the company connected to the Saudi government that is behind that rumored December doubleheader. Meanwhile, Anthony Joshua promoter Eddie Hearn has sent an offer to Dillian White to face AJ on August 12th in what would be a rematch to a hard-earned win for Joshua back in 2015. And Hearn also said he's received an offer from the Saudi promoter, but not a contract for a Wilder fight in December. Um, the fourth star of that potential doubleheader is Tyson Fury, who has nothing scheduled and won't be facing Zhilai Zhang in the interim because Zhang is reportedly set for a rematch with Joe Joyce on September 2nd in London, ESPN reported this week. Eric, any thoughts on any of these developments and on how likely this big December doubleheader is looking? So I guess boxing has sold out to the Saudi regime a little less than golf has. Is that something to hang our hats on? Barely. <laughs> if we have to go with something? Um, if uh, if Usyk is signing with the Saudi promoter and Hearn has a preliminary offer for the Wilder fight, then clearly this is real. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean it will happen. But it clearly is the objective, and what an amazing card it would be. Uh, the, the wild card in signing on the dotted line is always Fury, and I guess it's looking increasingly likely that he comes into an Usyk fight inactive for a full year. Um, Joshua White, too. That's interesting. Um, White has just enough left to be a little bit of a threat to AJ. They, of course, have the recent common opponent in Jermaine Franklin, makes it easy to say that AJ is better because he beat Franklin more comfortably. And AJ is better than Dillian White. Uh, but there's there's some risk here. Um, I will say Fury versus Zhang would have been a perfect interim fight for Fury. You know, just promotable enough. Probably not terribly dangerous, although not a total walkover. Uh, but Joyce had that rematch clause and apparently wasn't just looking for step-aside money. Um and I can actually see Joyce evening the score. I don't think this is a case where the rematch has to go the same way as the first fight. Um, but anyway, there, there's there's a lot happening in the heavyweight division. But at the same time, sort of nothing is happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more talking than fighting, but it feels yeah. like it's all building toward the most mega of mega cards. And we'll feel dirty about supporting it, but we can't not watch. Um, but, you know, let, let's see if Usyk gets past Dubois. If Fury signs to fight him, if AJ gets past White, who knows if Wilder will squeeze in a tune-up. You know, he's fought one round in the last two years. There's still quite a few things that need to happen between now and us all selling out in December. Yeah. Uh, plenty of items on our news undercard. Uh, as much as Canelo Alvarez has said over and over that a rematch with Dimitri Bivol is the fight he wants in September, reports now have that looking unlikely because there's not enough money in it for all involved. Uh, and in a twist, Bivol says he wants it to be at super middleweight so he can win Canelo's belts, and Canelo wants it to be at light heavyweight so he can exact revenge under the same parameters as their first fight. Um, a couple of July Showtime cards are now official. 
On July 8th, as we discussed last week, Boots Ennis meets Raymond Villa, and we just learned of the co-feature, Joseph Adorno versus Edwin De Los Santos. And the following Saturday, July 15th, Frank Martin faces Artem Hartunian, supported by a bout between Nito Denaire and Alejandro Santiago. Uh, Showtime Boxing's Busy July all builds to the Spence Crawford pay-per-view on the 29th, and Dan Rayfield reports that one of the pay-per-view undercard bouts will match Isak Pitbull Cruz against Giovanni Cabrera. Also, the Spence Crawford media tour kicks off this week with a Los Angeles press conference Tuesday and a New York press conference Wednesday. And lastly, lightweight Jermaine Ortiz was supposed to fight on the Taylor Lopez card, but he missed weight uh, by several pounds, enough that he didn't even bother to weigh in, and the fight was canceled. Ortiz explained that he couldn't train properly due to a back injury. And I have to say, from personal experience, I get it. Uh, I learned five years ago that I have uh, mild scoliosis, and there are a lot of forms of exercise that I can't do anymore without causing myself serious back pain. I can't run. I can't make sudden movements. So in in terms of doing cardio to avoid packing on the pounds, uh, my jogging days are over. I can't play tennis or basketball or anything like that with any intensity anymore. Um, I can bike. I can go for long walks. I can do my little punching bag thing that I've talked about. Um, but anyway, not not being able to go for a good, hard distance run, that changes the whole equation when it comes to getting rid of those last 10 or so unwanted pounds. Um, I don't know exactly what's up with Ortiz's back and what he can and cannot do, but I, I'm generally buying the idea that a back injury would prevent him from cutting the final five pounds or so. So that's my take on that. Uh, a lot of other items here. Kieran, thoughts on any of these fights that are happening or probably aren't happening or in this case didn't happen? First of all, strong endorse on the whole back injury thing. It's, mm. uh, yeah, you don't actually <laughs> realize uh, it sounds like a stupid comment to make. But you don't realize how much you rely on your back until you can't. Right. Uh, boy, I haven't been there myself and been chair-bound, really. I, I mm. had just muscle spasms, not even anything as bad as you, a few years ago. And I couldn't even lay flat in my bed without oh. it being extreme agony. And uh, was living and sleeping in a recliner for, for a few weeks. So, yeah, indeed. We, we have really hammered home our reputation as the most washed boxing podcast out there. <laughs> just going to say, I was just going to say, our attempts to identify with these amazing <laughs> professional athletes actually having the complete opposite effect. Right. But, but that notwithstanding, we'll move on. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm not super surprised by the Bivol Canelo news, as, as Bivol in particular had already sounded a tad reluctant to do it at 175. And I feel like he'd said something before about why would I want to do that? 75 again i've done that it's not a challenge to me let's make it for his belt so um you know maybe it's a negotiating ploy but i don't think so i think it just might be bivol figuring yeah there's only so much time on earth why waste it doing what i've already done um hey look if that means and i know you're fine with this too if that means we get bivol beterviev and canelo benavides fine right i don't think either of us are going to complain about that um i don't know anything about Hartunian, who faces Martin, other than what I've seen from his box rec, which is that he's unbeaten at 12-0, and 0, all against names I don't recognize, and all in Germany. But, you know, Martin is still young and progressing, so this just might be an ideal opponent for him at this stage of his career. Um, you look at Alejandro Santiago's record, and you think he'd be a soft touch for possible future Hall of Fame and Anito Donaire, but I don't know, man. His record is a highly unusual 27-3-5, but... 
he's 11 and 1 over his last 12. Hmm. His only loss is by majority decision to the then undefeated Gary Antonio Russell. He's got wins against the likes of Antonio Nieves and David Carmona. This could be a really tough one for Donair, who is at the stage of his career where you still never quite know, but at the same time, as I think we've expressed several times over the last couple of years, I have long ago abandoned the idea of betting against Nonito Donaire. Right. Um, and I love Isak Cruz Giovanni Cabrera. Uh, Cabrera looks a little bit like a model, but he can fight. And he's got some good wins. He's got wins against the likes of Gabe Flores. He's tallish for lightweight at 5'9". So it'll be interesting to see how he meshes with the shorter pit bull. I, I like a lot of these fights that you've mentioned here. All right. Uh, we now wrap up the show with the top five list. Uh, a nice bookend to how we open the pod because it's Hall of Fame themed. Uh, you asked me to rank the top not yet eligible future Hall of Famers in order of most slam dunkiest or uh, slam dunkiosity, uh, if you prefer. Slam dunkitude? I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. Go. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go slam dunk it, dude. Uh, so uh, active <laughs> fighters or fighters who have retired re- recently enough to not get on the ballot yet. And as I count them down, you will take on the challenge of attempting to rebut the case to present oh. a counter argument for why they're not a Hall of Famer, or at least why they're not such a slam dunk first ballot choice. Um, and as I started to prepare my list, I quickly realized there is absolutely no suspense about who's number one. There's no debate, and you would be breaking your back, uh, your apparently weakened <laughs> back, uh, to make an argument that this person isn't a first ballot Hall of Famer. So for the first time ever, I'm doing a number zero, someone above okay. number one who won't be part of the countdown. It's like how in divisional rankings, you know, if there's a champ, you have the champ, right. and then the next contender is number one. Here we have a champ, a number zero, and then I can count down his top five contenders. It is, of course, Manny Pacquiao. If you want to make the case that because of PED rumors, he isn't such a slam dunk, go ahead, Kieran, but it's probably not worth it. So can we agree that Manny, whose whose career could be split into two halves and they'd both be easy first ballot Hall of Fame resumes, that he is number zero and, and we'll move on to counting down the next five? Yeah, OK, fair enough. I get I get the argument there because that would be a, a, outside of the possible PED thing then yeah that would be tough and I choose to interpret this as you going the route of alphabet bodies and starting to pick super champions and <laughs> I think it's sad but so be it I understand the reasoning for it wow that is a deep deep insult and that's what the guy who just it was hanging out at an alphabet body convention. So yeah. there you go. But, you know, the least offensive of all the alphabet bodies. Uh, agreed. So. Indeed. All right. Uh, all right. Fair here enough. we go. Number five. Um, and for the record, I have a list 10 long, not counting Pacquiao, <laughs> that I already consider slam dunks. So being number five here, that means you are absolutely a slam dunk for me. Right. It's the reigning heavyweight champion of the world, undefeated through 34 pro fights, Tyson Fury. Uh Anyone who becomes the legit heavyweight champ for more than just a fight or two gets into the hall. I think Fury clinched his spot in 2020 when he dominated Deontay Wilder in their second fight. He's 2-0-1 against Wilder. He ended Hall of Famer Vladimir Klitschko's 10-year reign in boring but decisive fashion. And that's more than enough. Uh, Admittedly, the rest of his competition, so-so. You know, Dillian White... Derek Chisora about a dozen times or two dozen times or something like that they've fought. Uh, Steve Cunningham. But uh, the Wilder trilogy and beating Vlad, that's plenty. Even if he never fights Usyk or Joshua or he does fight them and loses, 
Fury is a sure shot for the Hall of Fame. For me, if Riddick Bowe is in, if Ken Norton is in, then Tyson Fury is in. Now, I should point out that the whole idea of this was that I was going to challenge, channel my inner tweeter in my attempts to knock these down. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to imagine, you know, the <clears throat> the worst, but the worst of the worst out there will say, here's what I know, because I've actually even gotten it. Okay. God, I can't believe that you're overriding Tyson Fury on the back of those wins against Deontay Wilder. And Wilder, as we all know, can't box. He's just got a big right hand. Steve Cunningham knocked him down, for heaven's sake. There's that whole issue with PEDs. And you know what? If it had been anyone else, his fight against Artifaline would have been stopped on a mm. cut. And then what would have happened? Uh, it's just, it, I'm completely unconvinced, he says, in an unconvincing way. <laughs> I am unconvinced that you're unconvinced, but... Uh, <laughs> and as... this doesn't augur well for the... <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's part of the assignment. But no, you did a good job there. I think that those are reasonable arguments to propose but ultimately a sane person realizes that right. we can't it's, 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 but, it's important yeah. to point out that these are not the same right. person's rationales. Yes. Right. Yes. The, the, as insane rationales go, those are, those are pretty solid. Good job there. All right. But it's only going to get harder uh, to, to rebut these. He was my, my number five choice. Okay. All right. So number four, uh, I go from a very, very big man to a rather small man. And, one whose name has already been mentioned on this podcast uh, just a few oh, minutes fuck. ago because <laughs> he this. is on the Showtime schedule for July, Nonito Denaire. He's won titles in four divisions, including three separate reigns at Bantamweight. He's held titles in three separate decades. He was, for a few years, a consensus top five pound-for-pounder. He was the BWAA Fighter of the Year in 2012. He's also delivered the Ring Magazine Knockout of the Year twice and is one of the best punchers in the history of the lighter weight classes. And as much as we'd both like to see him retire, the fact is he's still a legit contender at age 40. It's a no-brainer. Uh, in terms of having both an elite peak and having longevity, he fully checks both of those boxes. Nonito is my number four. Good luck, Kieran. I'm deeply regretting the way I formatted <laughs> this assignment No already. turning back now. No. How would... I've never actually seen anybody try to argue against Lenito Daenerys. Well, how would you do that? <laughs> well, I mean, what what could be the possible argument against? I guess you could just argue how many Hall of Famers has he beaten? Yeah, would that's that, that's would that be that's, an argument. That's a start. I don't think he's beaten anyone who's likely to end up in the Hall. And I was right. going to say maybe you point out a few of his softer losses. That oh, he lost to Nicholas yeah. Walters. Not didn't just lose to Nicholas right. Walters. He got beaten up by Nicholas Walters. Nicholas Walters who quit like a dog against Vasily Lomachenko, <laughs> and we haven't seen him since. So that gives you a sense of exactly where. I mean, he lost to Jesse Magdaleno for God's sake. And right. who the hell, you know, has Jesse Magdaleno ever beat? God, he's just uh good matchmaking and moving <laughs> up and down in weights at the right time he argues unconvincingly a valiant effort i'll accept it here we go uh, <laughs> god it's not gonna get easier this no. is it uh up next and uh, i struggled a bit with the order of my three four and five but sure. I, I put this guy at number three and he honestly could rise higher Oleksandr usik um if if he should face Tyson Fury and beat Tyson Fury and become the lineal heavyweight champion of the world, Usyk is almost on that Pacquiao level of, of Hall of Fame-ness. Um, but just based on what he's done so far, in just 20 pro fights, he's unified the cruiserweight title. 
left the division as no worse than the second greatest cruiserweight of all time, and then captured three major heavyweight belts by beating Anthony Joshua, not once, but twice. Uh, again, the order is debatable here. If you want to put him below Fury or Donaire, I can see that. But I think Usyk having a case for greatest cruiserweight ever and then pulling off the feat of winning a piece of the heavyweight title and by beating a legit super heavyweight sized title holder, uh, I think he is even more of a slam dunk than Fury or Donaire. I have him at number three. Um, and as we know, I certainly was never a massive advocate of his during his early cruiserweight days at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, he, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel terrible for you. This is awful. What a horrible idea. This is my own file, but I, I'm sure it's one of the most entertaining top, the top, uh, uh five lists in many ways. He was taken 12 rounds by Krzysztof Glavatsky, for God's <laughs> sake. And and Derek Chisora looked like he almost had him out in the first few rounds of their fight. And mm. he performed arguably worse in the rematch with Anthony Joshua than in the first fight. Um, Kieran, Kieran, and, I'm, I'm going uh, to help majority you out. Majority decision. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to help you out here. This is real easy. All you had to do was say, what What does his last name mean in Alaskan or Inuit or whatever it is? And th- how could someone with that name be in the Hall of Fame? Right, yeah. Uh, for those who don't know that ongoing joke, uh, yeah. Usyk spelt differently is Anupia Eskimo for walrus penis bone. Yes. And, um, and I have told him that. And <laughs> thank God he thought it was funny. Um <laughs> As but, he should. Uh, yeah. But yeah, listen, nobody uh... whose name means walrus penis bone has been in, <laughs> inducted into the Hall of Fame yet. So I don't yet, know. Yes. But, you know, if your name was walrus penis bone, you'd probably be a fighter as well. That's um, a good point. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's that's what I got. Took him eight rounds to get rid of Tony Bellew. And um, majority decision when against Maris Bradis. I, I mean, obviously, he shouldn't be. Honestly, I don't think he should even be allowed to visit the Hall of Fame, let alone be in it um, for that <laughs> record. So, I suppose, actually, the counter uh, argu- the, the argument against him is basically the cruiserweight division historically sucks and everything you accomplish yeah. there means nothing to me. Maybe that's but the way then he steps up to, But then he steps up to heavyweight. And well, but Anthony done, Joshua's just, a fraud. Yeah. He's fragile. He is a fraud, actually. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Got no heart. I mean, yeah. yeah. All right. I'm kind so of enjoying trying to help you out with these. Couldn't stop, couldn't stop him. Andy Ruiz stopped Anthony Joshua. And he's not a Hall of Famer, and Lucy couldn't do that. Yeah. That right. is actually, that does sound like a Twitter argument. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. We got there. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> Again, it's only going to get harder. Here's my number two. <laughs> I can't um, imagine how, actually. But, okay. uh, if you know me at all, you knew that this guy was coming somewhere near the top of my list. Another little guy like Denaire, another guy with extraordinary longevity and a second career after we started to write him off. But he climbed higher on pound for pound list than Donaire did. He climbed as high as it's possible to climb. I am, of course, of course, talking about Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez, briefly the pound for pound king, <laughs> uh, the most tiny dominant fighter the sport has seen since Ricardo Lopez. He was the man at 105, 108, and 112, and he won belts at 115. He was undefeated through his first 46 fights across 11 years um, of his four losses. Three of them are by decisions I don't agree with. Uh, and he's one of the most fun <laughs> fighters to watch uh, and has been throughout his career. Uh, the trilogy with Juan Francisco Estrada is a classic. 
I don't know what else to say, except that if you don't think Chocolatito is an automatic Hall of Famer, I'm cutting off your hands so you can't fill out a Hall of Fame ballot. <laughs> I'm sorry to get violent, but I'm passionate about the greatness of Chocolatito. You want to just pass on this one, Karen, so I don't have to cut off your hands? Um, I, I just pulled up his box rack to see if there's the tiniest of holes to... to um... There there would have been if if He's... if some of those decision losses had been decisive actual decision losses right again he could be i forget his exact record but something and one could be his record yeah he's 50 he's 51 and four and i i'm with you that he should probably be what would that be uh 54 and one four and one yeah yeah yeah. um (laughs) resistance is futile kieran uh moises fuentes lasted five rounds with him (laughs) I'm going to throw in the towel for you. Um, yeah, I think that's probably best. This was a horrible idea. <laughs> I thought really this was going to be a good idea. This is just a terrible idea. No. And it, it I think would I know ha- who your number one is, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's not going to be to. any. No. Uh, all right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious at this point uh, who my number one is. It is a Hall of Fame. Fame. Star power matters. This fighter is the biggest star of his generation. The biggest draw in the sport post Manny and Floyd. Plus, he reached the top of the pound-for-pound list and has a Hall of Fame in-ring resume, even if he had the fan base of, say, uh, Guillermo Rigondeau. Uh, My number one is Canelo (laughs) Alvarez, who, uh, by the way, is still only 32. Uh, Even though you and I think he has slowed down a bit, he still should have some major accomplishments and massive fights left ahead of him. Anyway, titles at 154, 160, 168, and 175, including lineal championships in two of those divisions, fights against almost all the biggest and best of his time across all those divisions. Uh, You recall that loaded Hall of Fame ballot a couple of years ago when they shortened Mm. the retirement time to three years, so it got overcrowded, and you had Floyd, Vladimir, Andre, and Miguel all at once, and someone had to wait, and it was uh, Miguel. Well, uh, if Canelo is on that ballot... He's second only to Floyd, I think. And and either Andre or Vladimir has to wait also. To me, he is easily the slam dunkiest out there right now other than Pacquiao. And uh, I don't know. Do I even want to hear you attempt a futile counter argument? Uh, Cherry Picker waited till um, the right moment before he fought his best opponents, made Golovkin wait until he was too old. Um... Uh, P.E.D. Yes, there it was. I was waiting uh, for you to ring that there bell. It was. Yeah. There it is. Uh, couldn't lay a glove on Floyd. Uh, if I'm Brian Campbell, lost to Austin Trout. Um, <laughs> but I'm not Brian Campbell. But um, All right. beat an old Shane Mosley. Uh, I don't believe any of it. But I can make a, I can find a Twittery kind mm-hmm. of case against Canelo more than I can against Chocolatito or, or, or Nanito or somewhere. But of course, there's a difference between is he like the, the greatest of all time or one of the very greats as opposed to being in the Hall of Fame? He's the greatest right. Hall of Fame. Right. Right. You know, okay, but under the circumstances, though, you put together all the possible cases against pretty nicely there. That was, that was, you struggled with that less than you did with some of the guys who came before him on <laughs> Yeah. Um, my, uh, my honorable mentions just quickly, five more that I consider absolute slam dunks uh terence crawford gennady mm-hmm. golovkin vasily mm-hmm. lomachenko juan francisco estrada 
And already, I think it's safe to say no in a way. I I can't imagine not voting for any of those guys, although some are in that Kodo category of, you know, if the ballot's crowded, they could have to wait a year. Um, Then there are a bunch of guys who are probably on their way to the Hall of Fame, but I guess I can't say it's impossible they don't get in. At the top of that list is Errol Spence. Um, He's like almost a lock, certainly becomes a lock if he wins on July 29th. Uh, overrated. All of them hacks. Right. Uh, uh, who have they fought? Um, padded resumes. Yes. Um, duckers. I, I don't know. I'm done. This was a bad idea. All right. But the the main assignment was an excellent assignment. Just the, okay. the the part your role in it. Yes. Bad idea. Many regrets. Never again. But uh, <laughs> never again. Was trying to shake it up. Trying to do something different. And that's uh-huh. what happens when that's you try to do price something you pay. different. Yeah. That's the price you pay. So, b- before you put a button on the podcast, Kieran, uh, may okay. I squeeze in a, a quick plug for another piece of Showtime content? Uh, episode two of our friend Stephen Jackson's Fight Town series went up last week. This was Fight Towns Houston. Uh, it's on the Showtime YouTube channel. It's a really fun watch. And two minutes in, there was a little clip, like 20 seconds long, of a conversation between Jamal Charlo and Stephen Jackson that absolutely slayed me. I, I-, I want to drop it in here now. I think I know the answer. Jose Caseco and Mark McGuire. That's the reason y'all call yourself the Bass Brothers? Nah, nah. Mark the, McGuire and the, the Mighty Ducks. Caseco? The Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks movie. Yeah. So you know who's the original Bass Brothers, right? That's the, the original Bass Brothers. Too. No, the original Bass Brothers are Jose Caseco and Mark McGuire. But no, it's because mm-hmm. of Mighty Ducks. That's the crazy My, shit ever. D3. Done. D3. Do you, you remember that? You ever watched? I don't watch no goddamn hockey movie. Uh, Jamal has no idea who Maguire and Canseco are, it seems, and thinks the Bash Brothers originated with the Mighty Ducks movies, D3 specifically. Um, and, and by the way, I'll just note, I think I can finally tell the Charlo twins apart. Um, us, oh. us, us interviewing Jamal in person, I can now recognize both facially and in the voice, I think that's the guy we interviewed or that's not the guy we interviewed. I, I think I finally reached the point where I, I hear or see one of them talking and my brain uh, knows who it is, I think. so. Oh, really? I don't yeah. think I'm there even after the interviewing. I mean, I, I think as I might have mentioned to you afterwards, even as I was introducing him during our interview, <laughs> part of my brain was worried that I was getting it wrong. Getting it wrong, right. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've felt that way all along, um, but I, I think I turned a corner here. Watching Fight Towns, there was something in his voice that I was like, yep, that's the one we interviewed. That's Jamal. Uh. I know him. Uh, all right. Okay. Well, that will do it for this mostly good, but ultimately disastrous episode of Showtime Boxing with Vasco Namoveni. Remember, kids, never try to do anything new or different. You'll regret it. Um, we'll be back next week with our post-fight analysis of Zoo Ocampo and our preview and predictions for the next Showtime Championship Boxing card, headlined by Carlos Adamas versus Julian Williams. Until then, thanks as always for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>